This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Liberal policies that didn't stand a snowball's chance at the legislature in the last few years now do with Democrats in control. Oil and gas restrictions, repealing the death penalty, gun control, for instance. But so far, things at the state capitol have been relatively quiet, with the notable exception of a sex education bill. So what's up? I asked public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. It's definitely a whole new world when Democrats are in charge of both legislative chambers and the governor's office. That means a lot of these policies have a chance of passing. And so Democrats are doing a lot of work behind the scenes, trying to negotiate things, fine-tune language, bring stakeholders together in a much more serious way than they maybe did in previous sessions when something they may want to pass would fail in the other chamber, which was controlled by Republicans. I mean, differently put... You could slap something together that might not pass and put it out there quickly. Uh, That's less the case when there isn't the break, if you will, of a second party. Yes, that's true. There have been some contentious hearings already, though. I mean, I think of the sex ed bill that Democrats put forward. And boy, that was that was a long and contentious hearing. Yes, that was one of the more combative hearings I've ever covered. Hundreds of people came to the Capitol. The testimony lasted all day. They voted on the committee just before midnight. And what that bill does is it eliminates abstinence-only sexual education in Colorado. If schools are going to teach sex ed, it has to be comprehensive. There were some sticking points on students having to learn about same-sex relationships and teachers not following gender norms or stereotypes. And a a lot of parents and, and people were extremely upset about that bill. Families should be free to determine when and how their children are taught with these sensitive subjects. So yes, they should be taught in the family. It should not be the government's right to teach our children. We will teach them at home. As a young Catholic queer woman of color, I feel that I have been failed by my public education. I do not have the opportunity to receive a truly comprehensive sexuality education. I'm here today hoping that you'll prevent other young people from not being denied the information that they deserve to have. Then there's this bill that has to do with presidential elections, Benta. Yes, it is the national popular vote measure and says that Colorado electoral votes would go to who's ever the winner of the national popular vote. It's contingent on enough states participating in this type of policy. So that's being pushed by a national group. And, you know, there's not as many details to maybe work out there. I imagine the Democrats have their eye on President Trump and former President George W. Bush, both of whom won the presidency uh, without the popular vote. Uh, What other big things are you waiting for? So many things. Uh, Oil and gas policy changes, potentially more local control and changes to how the state regulates the energy industry. A lot of Democrats ran on that issue. Climate change, a top priority for the governor trying to tackle that. Democrats will be unveiling bills on climate change. There's going to be some gun legislation on a red flag bill that failed last year in the Republican-controlled Senate that would temporarily remove guns from someone if that person is deemed a threat to themselves or others. That will be contentious. There's going to be a death penalty repeal, safe injection sites. Um, The list kind of goes on and on with things that are going to drop and we've still got the budget. So it's going to be a pretty heavy lift. It sounds like the big lesson for those of us, uh, I guess, on the outside of this process is that if a major policy is introduced later in the session, it's not that lawmakers just got around to thinking about it, but 
actually the opposite, that even more work probably went into it behind the scenes. I think that can be the case. You know, one lawmaker said, look, we don't want to just slap a bunch of bills up there on a topic and see what sticks. You know, we want to be pretty thoughtful about it. Keep in mind, it's a diverse caucus among Democrats. They have a wide majority in the House. Some people come from very progressive liberal districts. Other people are in more conservative areas. So there's not always going to be a complete alignment. And then when you go to the Senate, Democrats only have a two-seat majority there. And certain lawmakers are more moderate depending upon the issue. So you do have to still build that stakeholder support. Republicans and Democrats do work together at the Colorado Capitol on a host of issues. It's still good for people to try to get that bipartisan support. That's not always going to happen. They don't need Republicans. For instance, I've been talking to Democrats who are working on the oil and gas policy changes. And so far, I don't think Republicans are being brought into those discussions. Certainly the industry is. I'm curious, Benta, you talk about, you know, not all Democrats seeing eye to eye. How in general have you seen the governor interacting with the democratically controlled legislature? I think it's a little too early in the session to see how that's going to play out. We haven't seen bills reach his desk yet. I've heard that he is hands-on right now. His team is working with lawmakers a lot. They're trying to craft bills in conjunction with his office, you know, look, is this something the governor would sign? You know, I think we'll definitely be tracking that relationship as the session progresses. Of course, we also saw uh, Governor Polis testify on a priority for him, which is full-day kindergarten. Is there a danger that if these Democratic priorities are introduced later in the session, that lawmakers will end up with cramped schedules and just not enough time to, you know, consider everything. Yes, absolutely. And that probably happens every session. And I think certainly this one, it will. It's been four years since Democrats had complete legislative control. There's a lot of things they wanted to get done as a party and a lot of new lawmakers that ran on platforms. So there'll be quite a bit of movement. I listed a bunch of things we could see. Then there's always the issues we don't anticipate or bills we don't see coming. So Some things do fall by the wayside just by the nature of the schedule. The session has to last a certain number of days. They could, of course, do a special legislative session, but that costs a lot of money. That's not usually an ideal option. Mm. So we'll see what happens in, in these four months of compressed time. Benta, thanks so much. Happy to talk to you. Benta Berkland is CPR's public affairs reporter, talking to us from our new studio near the state capitol. I mentioned that Governor Polis testified before a legislative committee this week touting his $227 million plan to pay for full-day kindergarten statewide. Colorado only pays for a half-day now. It's up to each school district if they want to go beyond that. And some communities don't offer it at all. So where does the research land on this? Let's ask Duke Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience Harris Cooper. He did a meta-analysis of full-day kindergarten. It's like a study of all the studies. And Harris, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. I suppose the assumption would be that full-day kindergarten is twice as good as half-day kindergarten. You're doubling the benefit to kids. Can we say that based on the research? I'm not quite sure you would want to say that it doubles, but it it does uh, affect kids' achievement. The kids who go to full-day kindergarten perform better. I can give you an idea of what the difference is. If you took 100 kindergartners, uh, the average kid, the kid who sat at the 50th percentile, um, the the 50th percentile for full-day kindergarten kids would do better than 60% of the kids who go to half-day. 
Okay, that's a, a lot to get my mind around. Uh, might you put that sure. in, in slightly different words? Well, they do, they do better um, you th- if you think about uh, ranking kids in high school. You know, when you graduate high school, you get a class rank. Uh, the, the effect of full-day kindergarten when you graduate kindergarten jumps you over about 10% of the kids who wouldn't have gone to full-day kindergarten. All right. And are those effects lasting? Well, they do fade away, but a fade away is a bad term to use. By the time you get to the third grade, the kids who have gone to full-day kindergarten are doing as well as the kids who went to half-day. However, it raises another issue. Kids who go to full-day kindergarten at this point, and the ones who are in the studies, tended to be from poorer and urban homes. So they are going to start out with a disadvantage And what full-day kindergarten does is it gives them a bump up. The problem is is that it's not a silver bullet. It can't be the only thing that we do for these children. If they do go to full-day kindergarten and it helps them prepare for reading, then they won't be eligible for programs that would begin in the first grade. Half-day kindergartners will catch up. It's also the case because they're coming from a more impoverished environment their line of progress or their slope as they as their line progresses through school is flatter than that of children of greater means. So eventually those kids catch up about the third grade. The cautionary tale is, is that because we give kids full-day kindergarten, if they're coming from poorer homes, it doesn't mean that we're done with them when first grade starts. They still need help. They still need that support. And so full-day kindergarten is only part of the picture. I want to note that some fresh findings came in this week. The Colorado Preschool Program reports that low-income kids it sent to preschool and kindergarten are less likely to have reading deficiencies, less likely to be held back in early grades. And further down the line, uh, the... Colorado Preschool Program says these students are more likely to graduate on time than their peers. Why don't we listen to some of what Governor Polis had to say at that committee hearing? And of course, educationally speaking, uh, nearly all the studies show the immense educational benefits of kindergarten uh, that, that persist both for reading and math and hard skills, as well as stronger development of social, 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 social and emotional skills. Um, there's simply... Uh, a major difference, ask any first grade teacher between a student for whom that's their first full day of school and a kid who was able to take advantage of full day kindergarten or even preschool. Let's do some fact checking of that. So is it that noticeable that by by the time a, a kid arrives in first grade, a teacher's able to tell who went to full day kindergarten, who didn't? I think the the first, the findings associated with pre-K are perfectly consistent with what we know about kindergarten. Um, it is, and it is the case that we don't study it as often, so there isn't as much evidence. Mm. But the evidence that we do have suggests um, uh, kids who go to full-day kindergarten um, are going to ha- be higher in self-confidence, their ability to work and play with other children, and they will also have better attendance records. So there are social and emotional benefits as well. And is it true that those benefits apply specifically to reading and to math? 
Um, yeah, I, these are these are life skills. If we talk about um, self confidence and and working with others, uh, getting along in groups, that kind of thing are all skills that are not ac- measured academically, but will help kids throughout their lifetime. Okay. And what do we know about the academics in particular? Are there greater benefits in, say, reading or math, or is it across the board? I think it's across the board. We, th- we focus on reading because it's so critical to a child's success uh, later on. And um, we know that Kids, especially kids who come from poorer environments, are not as exposed to a reading or even words and language as much as our kids who come from homes that are better off. And that's, that's the outcome that uh, interests people most. Is full-day kindergarten right for all kids, first question, and might it be right for some at different ages? Um, I wonder That's if, a very, if, yeah, if maturity needs to be a part of the discussion here. Maturity should be a part of the discussion. When you're five years old, you're not terribly mature, and kids will will be of different maturity levels. How much they need to be with mom, and at home. Uh, so we have to be careful that the kindergarten environment. This is another cautionary tale, that the kindergarten environment understands the maturity of children, that they differ from one another and makes those kind of accommodations. One of the things that worries people about a full-day kindergarten is what's called the hurry child. We don't want kindergarten to be first grade moved down a year. Uh, We want to make sure kids feel safe, comfortable, um, and they're uh, protected from uh, older children who uh, who might not often be the best role models. So the bottom line is, um, yes, kindergarten, full-day kindergarten is uh, great for kids, but we have to be careful that they are still only five years old. They will vary in their level of maturity, and we're not just trying to make kindergarten first grade. Harris Cooper from Duke, we have about a minute left. I wonder how teachers and parents generally feel about full-day kindergarten. And I'm not, I'm not asking about Polis's plan specifically. I mean, mm-hmm. they may think it's not the state's role to pay for universal full-day kindergarten when there are so many other pressing needs in the state. But how do parents and teachers feel about it in general? Well, parents enjoy it quite a bit. The parents of kids who go to full-day kindergarten have expressed very positive attitudes toward it. It's not just the fact that their child is being exposed to other children or that they are um, have a, a qualified instructor, a professional teacher in front of them, but parents, many parents today, uh, work outside the home. You can have two-parent families where both parents work outside the home mm-hmm. you, or single-parent families, and they have child care issues. And the environments that many children go to after school while mom or mom and dad are still at work cannot be as enriching as can the school environment. Teachers like the fact that they can be a little bit more relaxed about their instruction, that they get the kids to know They get to know the kids better, um, and that helps them individualize their instruction and help them get ready for the first grade. Harris Cooper, professor of psychology and neuroscience at Duke. He has studied the effects short and long term of full-day kindergarten. (laughs) 
Two milestones came in quick succession for Ray Hallquist. He started a company and adopted a little girl. At the time, his financial advisors suggested he start a college savings account for her, a 529 plan. So we opened up one for my first daughter. We adopted a second daughter. I opened up a second one and just started contributing because 18 years from now, that's a big chunk of money that they might need for school. Meanwhile, Hallquist's company, he does general contracting, was growing by leaps and bounds. HPM Contracting in Centennial does a lot of government work and big commercial remodeling projects. You're a new company and you're trying to recruit and retain employees and, you know, separate yourself a little bit. I uh, kicked around with a couple of my employees the idea of us matching on a 529 plan if we offered it to our employees. And they actually thought it was a great idea. It would spark them to actually contribute themselves. And then I said, well, we would match up to $1,000 if they contributed. So it was a way to set his firm apart. But now the state wants to encourage more companies to do the same. Starting this year, businesses qualify for a tax break if they contribute to their employees' 529 accounts. To tell us more, Angela Beyer is here. She's CEO of College Invest, which administers the state's college savings program. Hi, Angela. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. First off, why is it in the state's interest to encourage companies to do this? You know, on multiple levels. One, um, in the current economy, to have uh, be able to attract and retain talent is great for our economy. And also keeping down student loan debt with our families. So there is a state interest, you think, in contributing uh, tax-wise to this? Uh, absolutely. You know that uh, the federal student loan debt is now over $1.5 trillion, and that's impacting people's ability to buy homes and cars. And so keeping that student loan debt for future generations is critical for the state and the nation. Okay, briefly explain the tax credit for us. Okay. Um, on an individual level, your contributions are deductible dollar for dollar. And now, starting January 1, for companies can get a 20% tax credit for up to $2,500 per employee. Per employee. Yeah, it's a, it's a true impact for those families. Now, it's interesting because for the company we heard about, he was already doing it, even without this incentive. Do you think that the incentive will bring a lot more companies into the fold? What are you seeing so far? Um, absolutely. And actually, he started doing it because we reached out to him after the legislation passed in May. Um, we have a team talking with companies. We already have 16 that are committed to doing this, and we hope to see significant more. For folks unfamiliar with 529 accounts, just briefly help us understand how they work and what kind of education they can pay for. Absolutely. So a 529 can pay for any credential after high school. So that's trade school, community college, university, post-grad. There's a lot of focus often on college, but the point is this could be for a technical school. Absolutely. A looming question is, did Ray Hallquist's employees actually take advantage of his offer? Uh, Here's his answer. Of the 32 employees we have, 16 are participating, so 50%, but seven of those don't have children. So these are right out of college kids who might have school debt of their own, and they're contributing into a 529 for a future beneficiary that they don't have yet. Interesting. A kid that they may have or not, or a niece or a nephew. Exactly. Or they could use it for themselves if they want to retire in 40 years and they want to learn to be a cooking instructor or they want to do a second career. They can use that money on themselves in the future. So that's interesting, the inherent flexibility of whom it can benefit. That's absolutely right. I couldn't say it any better than Ray. Uh, Does this ignore, though, the fundamental problem that college is simply too expensive? 
Sure, you can keep saving earlier and earlier and more and more, but isn't the elephant in the room the cost of college? You know, it may be, but at College Invest, we're a nonprofit trying to help the families until that can be solved by others. Um, If you want to have any type of education after high school, you need to pay for it, and we're here to help cut that cost down. I wonder what your own experience has been paying for college and if you did it right. Um, It has been. I'm a single mother of two. I have a freshman in college, a senior in college, both in public universities. And it's costing me close to a quarter of a million dollars all in in today's dollars. When did you open or did you open a 529? I did, but not soon enough. I wish I would have done it. I didn't start until they were in late grade school. And it has been hard. And we haven't been able to avoid student loan debt. So that what? They were like in sixth or seventh or something? Yes. They were 11 years old. And that wasn't early enough? No. Okay. So here's Ray doing it essentially at birth for his newly adopted daughters. That's about the right time, would you say? That is exactly the right time before they're age three. If you can't do it at birth, when you get out of diapers, start saving that money. I think it's impossible to save too much. And if that happens, (laughs) I can't imagine personally, you can change your beneficiary at any time. You can use it for yourself. You can give it to future grandchildren. It's really... Uh, you can't save too much. Of course, then we heard about some of the employees in his company saving even before they have children. So it's possible to do this even earlier. (laughs) I wish I had done that. Yeah. Do lots of states offer this kind of incentive to employers so that they help employees pay for college? Uh, No, actually, Colorado is only the fourth. And so far, we have the largest number of companies that are interested. And so we really are leading the pack. And I I look to our very progressive companies. I also think that there's an incredibly tight job market in this state. And again, this has been about set setting companies apart from each other. Although if more uh, adopt this, I guess they're less distinctive. <laughs> but you know, it's like you, you know, you need to, I'd love it for it to be an expectation. You expect to have health care. You expect to have a 401k. I would love the day when people expect to have a 529 too. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Angela Byer, CEO of College Invest on a new state tax credit to encourage employers to help their workers save for college. Still to come, shattering myths about the earliest inhabitants of the Southwest. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of the CPR News podcast, Purplish. Our latest episode looks at how now former Governor John Hickenlooper managed to sign gun reform in a purple state. Let's examine our laws and make the changes needed to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. As Hickenlooper steps onto the national stage, a look back at one of its toughest moments as Colorado's governor. What that says about him as a potential president. Find Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Southwest is home to some of the world's great archaeological treasures, like the ruins of the ancient Puebloans. Think Mesa Verde. But our next guest says decades of scholarship has been misguided, and he wants us to rethink the ancient Puebloans. Steve Lexon has just stepped down as curator of archaeology at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. His new book is A Study of Southwestern Archaeology. Steve, welcome to our show. Thanks for your interest in Chaco. Yeah, you spent decades studying the Chaco civilization, which was centered at Chaco Canyon in New Mexico, 
and extended into what's now southern Colorado, so places like Chimney Rock near Pagosa Springs and Fairview House at Mesa Verde. Uh, I want to take on some of the assumptions that you question. First, the idea that these were simple societies, basically agrarian villages and not well organized. Why do you think that's misguided? Well, that's been the party line for quite a while uh, in archaeology, and it's also the the Park Service um, version at this point and the popular version. Chaco is a uh, ritual place, a ritual center for communal egalitarian farming societies. Um, Partly that's our projections because that's what we want to see in the past. But if you took Chaco and its region, picked it up and dropped it anywhere else in the world, the archaeologists wouldn't have any big problem with it. It's a capital city, uh, which means there's a, a government, you know, kings or something like that. Of a region about the state of Indiana, uh, which had maybe sixty to one hundred thousand people in it, um, modern pueblos who are the descendants of folks people who built Chaco don't do anything like that. Uh, tell me about that. What about the present might be able to actually clue us into a fuller picture of the past? Well, from modern pueblo people, and I'm not a pueblo person, but uh, from what I've been privileged to hear from pueblo people. They recall a, a history in, in great detail of having a center in the past where, and now I'm quoting, people got power over people, and that was not right. And when they left that place, which I think was Chaco, they, they basically reinvented themselves. They, they had had kings. They'd seen that elephant. They didn't like, it didn't end well, and they didn't like it. And they reinvented themselves as communal, egalitarian, really you know, interesting and, and inspirational societies um, that uh, – get a lot of attention internationally. That's fascinating. Okay, so uh, there was something of a of reimagining of power structures. I'm just curious, was there a way to communicate if we're talking about a civilization of that size between disparate parts of it? Yeah, uh, the region was linked by what we call roads because they look like roads, although people had no wheeled vehicles, but these are long linear features that are, you know, 30 feet wide and run for miles and miles, from Chaco out like spokes in a wheel to the peripheries. And paralleling that was a line-of-sight signaling system um, uh, that used fire or smoke uh, from one high, high point to another to relay information back and forth. So it was, it was pretty well linked up. You talked about government. You talked about elites in the ancient Puebloan civilization. Um, so does, does that mean that there were indeed... Not quite royalty, but the the people who had more power than others, perhaps more money than others. Are there signs, perhaps, in the archaeology that point to this? Yeah, there's inescapable signs that you had two classes of people. You had nobles and you had commoners, which is shouldn't surprise us because all of America north of Panama at that time, you know, this is about 1100 A.D., uh, the larger societies all had nobles and commoners. And the, the architectural evidence is very clear on this, that we have the palaces on one side where the novices lived, the 1%, and then the regular family houses where the 99%ers lived. Very, very different. The 1%. Uh, would be a bit yeah. more specific about uh, the architecture. What are the sorts of structures, I don't know, say at Mesa Verde, that you think embody that? Uh, Farview um, House... It's not a cliff dwelling. It's one that's up on top of the mesa. Yeah, um, is much more massively built. It's a you know it went up in one shot, uh, is planned and then you know constructed with big 
big rooms, massive walls, uh, and you compare that to what normal people were living in at the time. I'm sure the normal people's houses, they loved them dearly, but uh, there's kind of ramshackle and small and tiny little rooms. Again, you could you could pick up one of the normal people's, a commoner's house, and fit it in a single room of the noble's house. Where do you think this idea comes from, that the ancient Puebloans, some of the first inhabitants of the Southwest, lived this egalitarian life? Where, where, how does that emerge? Uh, in archaeology and in popular culture, it comes from uh, a time, the first couple of decades of the 20th century, after the, after the First World War, when the anthropologists were getting into Pueblos and finding a culture that seemed exotic to the rest of the United States, but it, it was egalitarian and communal and very spiritual and ritual, and that it really appealed after the First World War and then the rise of the dictators. You had Franco and Mussolini and Hitler, and then you had the stock market crash. It was very popular, uh, not just among anthropologists, but uh, broadly among the American reading public. And that really took hold, and we we want the past to be like that, too. Interesting. It was a narrative that just appealed to us at that time. Yeah, in a, in a very unsettled world at that point, um, and it really, really was a mess in the teens and the 20s. Um, it was nice to think that there's this group of people who live communally and have never changed, unchanging, eternal. That's a big part of it. Do you think that there was also a sense or an assumption that the ancient people in America couldn't be sophisticated? Yeah, there is a bias within anthropology, the science that archaeology is a part of, um, that natives north of Mexico never did anything very interesting politically. They, they never had what technically you call states, which would be king, you know, nobles and things like that. That, that law got laid down, a uh, foundational principle, in the 1880s. And um, the guys that thought that taught the people who taught the people who taught the people who taught the people who taught, the people who taught me. So by now it's an axiom. It's, a, it's just assumed. And it's just not true. Uh, the Hopis are a tribe in Arizona that are seen as the descendants of the ancient Puebloans. And I've always been interested to reconcile that with the long-running narrative that the ancient Puebloans just vanished. And that idea persists. Do you see it that way? Yeah, it's uh, good marketing for Cortez and Durango. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, we used to, used to say they called them the Anasazi. was the old term for this, the yeah. ancestral Pueblo. Uh, Anasazi, where did they go? And if you took a roadmap in front of a Pueblo person, they'd just chuckle and say, I'll show you exactly where. They went to Hopi. They went to Zuni. They went to Acoma. They went to all those Pueblos on the, uh, in New Mexico on the Rio Grande. And they've known that forever. Uh, that's in their, their histories. And the archaeologists knew it, too. Uh, the, the mystery part of it is more commercial marketing, <laughs> and it works. <laughs> are you a lone wolf in holding these beliefs, or are others in your field coming to this? It's kind of generational. Uh, I'm a boomer. I just retired. Uh, the people that I came up with are having trouble with it. Uh, the younger people seem to be they're, yeah, they're, they're uh, not agreeing, obviously, with everything I say. Younger people would never do that. But um, they're, they're moving in that direction. And so do you think that at some point the National Park Service might change its narrative? You talked about this being so deeply embedded. Uh, I think they would probably have presented it as an alternative. Um, all this is complicated by, well, complicated in very good ways. 
by the um, ownership of that heritage by Pueblo people, their past. So a lot of what they want to say about it is what the Park Service should be saying. Hmm. The Pueblos don't talk too much about this episode in their past. They remember it, but they only bring it out, I think. Again, I'm not a Pueblo person. They bring it out when they have to. And when someone is behaving badly or is getting power over people, they say, we tried this before. That didn't work. And I, I know this from con- – I think I know this from conversations with Pueblo people, with colleagues. Fascinating. Um, so yeah, there will always be that narrative. Yes. Thank you for being with us. It's, it's just fascinating. Thank you. Steve Lexon was the curator of archaeology at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. His new book is A Study of Southwestern Archaeology. Artist Jordan Castile paints large, intimate portraits of family, friends, and strangers, and her work has captivated the contemporary art world. This weekend marks a major homecoming for Castile. The Denver-born artist is in town from New York for the opening of her first solo museum show. Returning the gaze at the Denver Art Museum features 30 of her paintings. Castile uses vivid colors and paints many of her subjects, all of whom are black, in the places they work, like a family-run Ethiopian restaurant, a Denver barber shop, or the Harlem street corner where a man sells CDs. She wants you to slow down and notice these people. Veronica Levitt is with the gallery in New York that represents Castile. I think Jordan's sensibility for capturing the temperament of her subjects is a nuance that is rare. For Denver Art Museum curator Rebecca Hart, it's the subject's gaze she finds most compelling. Each sitter looks out at the viewer and does that in a way that it's almost as if they're asking a question or demanding your attention. And I don't see that in very many other portrait painters that are working right now. I sat down with Jordan Castile, who's only 29, to learn about her relationship with the people she paints. Jordan, welcome to our show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Well, why laugh? Or you're in a good mood. I'm always in a good mood. I'm so excited to be here. I wonder if that's partly because, I mean, you have a a solo show in a museum you used to visit as a kid. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I am literally coming home to um, an institution that I used to occupy as a child and never foresaw myself as being any of any kind of magnitude on a wall that somebody would think my name would be worthwhile to put up and that the works that I was making. Why would it not have entered your head, do you think? (laughs) It's so abstract, I think, as a young person and even as an older person to think about how it is that you get your work on the walls of a museum. It, it, a museum in and of itself seems to be a place of kind of culture keeping and a accolade teller and the value giver of what it is that you're looking at. And I never saw any or knew anyone who was doing that kind of work that was actively making work and showing in a public capacity that maybe there were creatives around. So it's just so abstract. I never thought it was something that I could do, nor did I know how to do it. We'll talk about that and and how you came to be a painter. But I, I wonder what paintings you're working on now. The beautiful part about being a painter is that I get to evolve with the practice And the practice gets to become reflective of the things that I'm thinking about. So there have been some small crop paintings happening in my studio, which are 
um, indicative of my commute in New York and on the subways. So they've been capturing people's hands and their gestures, um, their clothing. It's a way for me to dig into a more abstract relationship with painting. I get to just paint and play with color that they don't hold the same weight or pressure um, intellectually, perhaps for me, as the larger scale, as a full portrait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Which, when you say a crop, you mean the hands are cropped. So that's the image. Yep. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So when I was doing the larger portraits, I was finding instances within those big paintings that I was really um, drawn to that were really just the hands or a minute gesture or a stroke of color that caught my interest. So I thought, how do I make that a painting in and of itself? You know, my stepmother um, is an artist, was an artist, and she talked about how notoriously difficult hands are to get right. Mm, Yes. Is that true? (laughs) Absolutely. What's kind of funny is my whole time in grad school, well, at least my first year, I was given a lot of criticism about my inability to draw hands. And it was that criticism and that pushing that really drove me to figure it out and to do hands. I was like, oh, okay, you tell me I can't. Like, wait till I can. What were your hands turning out like? Uh, Probably wonky. There's no better word than wonky. Um, (laughs) They were just imperfected in a traditional sense that I hadn't been formally trained in drawing, really. And so I was drawing with real expression and energy that was true to myself, but wasn't necessarily representative of um, a fine drawer in the traditional sense. You had no formal art training before applying to Yale's MFA program. No, it's crazy. That's right? wacky. It's so wacky. I, I mean, in some ways... I guess no is not completely fair in that I did take painting classes while I was at Agnes Scott College. I also took my first oil painting class my junior year in college when I studied abroad in Italy. And that's where I was like, oh, my goodness, I love painting. But when I got to Yale, I really did have to kind of start from the bottom and scrounge my way to the top that I had never stretched a canvas before. I had never... Uh, picked out paintbrushes and knew the differences between a sable or a bristol brush. And I just had to ask a lot of questions. I was a learner at Yale, and I think being a learner ultimately allowed me to um, succeed and to graduate, and um, <laughs> thank goodness that happens. <laughs> Let's talk about some of your images of Denver. Yeah. What, does Denver, like your first muse? Oh, absolutely. I think... Denver is my first muse because it is ingrained. I was born at Rose Hospital, that I literally have um, occupied the streets of Denver from the moment that I was born until I was 18 years old. The Denver community has kind of seeped into my being. And so the paintings of people in Denver felt very obvious and so obvious that I didn't do it for a long time. Um, I was painting people in grad school that were my community members there. But once I got to New York, I was thinking a lot about home um, and coming back home and painting the people that I loved here. Yeah, describe paintings. a Denver painting for us. Yeah. So, for example, I'm going to get my hair cut by Marcus this afternoon. So the painting of Marcus and Jace is a pretty special one. He is sitting next to his son who is asleep um, where in his barbershop. So I went to his barbershop. I wanted to do this portrait of him and his son. We couldn't wake up his son to save our lives. We were both like poking and prodding at his son. 
And eventually I said, you know what, Marcus, just put your arm around him. We're just going to go with it. And I think it's a really tender moment that we ultimately ended up capturing. The sun was setting. You see the kind of light cutting across his face. You see on the background all the pennants of the schools that people bring him to put on the walls of the barbershop. And one of those pennants is of Yale, which I brought back for him. Um, And he has been somebody, Marcus in particular, took me to prom, has been in my life for many, many years. And I gave him a call two days ago when I started to scramble and said, I think I need a haircut. Can you help me out? You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we're speaking with the painter Jordan Castile. She's from Denver and uh, has her first solo show at the Denver Art Museum. It features 30 of her paintings uh, created roughly from 2014 to 2018. Just more about your background. Your grandfather was civil rights activist Whitney Moore Young Jr. Uh, He was head of the National Urban League, an advocate for racial integration, particularly in the workplace. He died before you were born, but I wonder how you've absorbed his legacy of social justice as an artist. Yeah, so I think... His image and him as my grandfather was really prominent in my upbringing, but not in a in a way that felt as if I needed to carry a torch as his granddaughter. It was more about how do I live um, in the values that he has shared with my mother that I never personally got from him, but has got have gotten through my mother as a result. Your mother, Lauren Castile, who yes. has been described as the Oprah of Denver. Yes, by me, which she might be horrified okay. by. Why do you call her the Oprah of Denver? Um, Because she's fabulous. I mean, she is such a powerhouse in her own right. She has worked in philanthropy my entire life. She used to have her own TV show. We joke that Right now, as I walk down the street with her, you would think, based off this exhibition, that people would maybe be stopping me. But in fact, they're stopping her. And then um, <laughs> then they pass me on as a result. And she says, oh, and by the way, my daughter, she's getting ready for this exhibition. And so the legacy is something that you carry with you. It sounds like you don't feel burdened by it. No, not at all. I think, And I think my parents did a really wonderful job, in particular my mother, in making sure that we understood that... It is about walking the walk, um, not just talking the talk. So doing the work in my day-to-day life and embodying. And what does um, that look like? For me, that looks like telling the stories and getting people to see people that they might not have seen before, to slowing people down and creating literal space. So my grandfather, as you said, was interested in diversifying the workplace and really bringing inclusion to the workplace. And if you think about who we walk by on the street on a day-to-day basis, we are um, I think very frequently walking past people that we could have an opportunity to say hello to and might have actually more similarities and differences that we would perceive on first instinct. So the paintings are my way of slowing people down and making room for others and, and living with them as a result. And you literally, on the street, stop people and talk to them. Yes. And have the awkward request of, can I paint you? <laughs> yes. Which. Yeah. You know, in a in a particular setting could be quite creepy. Yes, it is. I'd I like think in most you. settings it is. I think about if the tables were turned and somebody did what I did to people, um, whether or not I would say yes. So oftentimes it looks like me walking up to somebody and saying, hi, my name is Jordan. That's like the simple start. Uh-huh. Um, and then saying, and I'm a painter and I am working on this project. You have a minute to kind of listen to what it is that I'm working on and seeing if you would be interested in participating. And I You've show done this images. in Harlem. I've done this in Harlem. I did it through email at Yale. I 
have done it with my students, I, every kind of different community I've occupied. And when people say no, is it just that they're pressed for time? I haven't gotten many no's, oh if I'm goodness. honest. I know. It's crazy. It's baffling to me every time um, that 99.9%, I can't even recall a moment where somebody has said no. So describe for me one of the Harlem paintings. The one that I love talking about the most was the first that I made or the first person that I photographed when I was a resident at the Studio Museum in Harlem. Because you, that's how you start the process is yeah. photographing? I photographed the subjects and I it was the first time that I made the decision to approach people I didn't know or have a connection to somehow. So I walked out on the street in Harlem and I was walking past Sylvia's restaurant and there, which is a... Kind of an institution of... of Gospel yep. and soul food. Soul food. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was walking by there and there was a young man, young old man, James, was sitting out front selling CDs. The sun was shining so beautifully on him. And I walked past him at first. And then I had this whole internal dialogue where I was like, you just made a huge mistake. You have to go back right now. And I turned around and I said, hi, James, my name is Jordan. And I was wondering if I could take your portrait. I'm trying to get you on the walls of the museum. I explained what Studio Museum was and what my goals were. And when he saw his painting for the first time, it was a pretty remarkable moment because he thought it was going to be a little drawing or something. So he stood in front of his painting and he said, oh, my God, I thought this was going to be a little drawing or something. I have to go get my wife. What was the scale? The scale was probably six foot by five foot at least. So they're big. He had to look up at himself. Uh um, And that experience was clearly a profound one. So what year was that? That was in 2015. 2015. It's so quaint to be selling CDs. Yes. What's the story behind that? Well, in Harlem, the entrepreneurship that happens on the street is unbelievable. So a lot of vendors set up shop on uh, Lenox Avenue and sell a wide range of things such as CDs, such as maybe hats and scarves, such as... um, I don't know, Glass Goods, Glassman Mike, who is somebody else I painted. There was Charles, who's going to be in the exhibition, and he sold furs that he would make in Canada and bring down and sell on the corner of 125th and Lenox. Mm. Um, so there's a real culture of entrepreneurship. What is it that you like about portraiture in particular? Like, do you always imagine your paintings will have a person in them? In some capacity, I always imagine that the paintings would represent my day-to-day life and and the things and the people that were around me. So portraiture and painting is just my way of slowing down and getting to know people at my own pace. And I do think in the earliest phases of my painting practice, I was doing self-portraits. When I was in Italy, I was painting the staff and my classmates. So it's always been just about my environment. More that than like a bowl of fruit. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Although bowls of fruit have been painted. I've done that. (laughs) Is it important to make people look good? I think that's the bigger question of looking good. How do we define what looking good is? Our perceptions of beauty, our perceptions of safety or comfort or familiarity. What's most important to me is to capture the essence of the people that I'm painting. So my experience of them, um, the gesture of their pinky sticking out or the clothes that they're wearing or the, the environment that they're in, Language often appears within the works as a result because people are determining for themselves how they want to look and feel. Language? Language. There's literal written 
language that appears in the majority of the paintings in the exhibition. And that has not been intentional in that I have kind of snuck in secret codes. It's just the codes that are already a part of our natural world. And Give me um, a few examples. So, for example, uh, Black is Beautiful is on the shirt of Timothy. And I think that as a community of color, we are often celebrating and memorializing and protecting ourselves, um, creating shields through the things that we're wearing, that we're affirming our existence um, by choosing to surround ourselves with language that is empowering. And that becomes evident in the clothing and in the environments that a lot of my subjects are represented in and wearing. So th- these are literal representations of what is on their clothing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's You're not no, adding things. No, no part of the painting is imaginative per se mm, that I I might move things around I might decide that that chair that was three feet to the left needs to be one foot closer and I believe that I am a magician of sorts and being a painter and that I get to change things that I have the autonomy to enhance what I think needs to be told the story that needs to be told in the composition so that visually it it holds your attention as a viewer thank you for being with us yeah thank you for having me Portrait artist and Denver native Jordan Castile. Her first major museum exhibition opens this weekend at the Denver Art Museum and runs through August 18th. To add to her delight, her hometown museum also bought two of her paintings for its permanent collection. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.